You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Tito, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. Hopefully, everybody's doing well. I am back. I am going on the road next week again, but I'm home for a little bit. I think I'll do some cutting this weekend. It's my son's birthday, but I'm going to go over. We're going to do a little cutting. He found his first shed. It was a big deal. I'm super excited about that. It was a small four-point side. It's just happy, happy for us, happy to find a shed. He was walking on the property and, and kind of stumbled, and I think I would have missed it, so I'm pretty happy for him. Uh, we've been doing a little hunting. In fact, he's trying to kill all the grouse on the property, so apologize to the Grouse Society, but we're overrun with grouse. Uh, this other piece of it I want to mention is Whitetail Company has donated hats. And um, in the last podcast, I mentioned that we'd be doing a giveaway. Please contact me, and I will give you some free stuff. So if you send me an email, you subscribe, any of those type of things, and I'll start doing giveaways like that. Um, there's other companies that reached out to me recently and want to give more giveaways. So I'm fine with that. If you want to give away stuff on this podcast, call me. I'll give it away for free and uh, the audience can benefit from it. And I appreciate you listening to the podcast. Last piece of it is this time of year, we need to start thinking about our deer's health. And I've got a great guest on today, Matt Ross from the National Deer Alliance, to talk a little bit about some of the topics of, you know, what are deer eating in the winter months and the importance of thinking about our landscapes and kind of preserving our landscapes too. A lot of these areas that I work on, I was just in Ohio, you know, they're overrun by deer and you can see the legacy effects because of the deer herd on the landscape. It's, it's not a focus point of mine to fix everything in the landscape, but we have the ability to manage the deer herd and that's our job. And a part of our job, we want to be considerate of what's available to them. And their nutritional status and health equates to usually better deer and better eating. And that's that's the focus, I think, of, of most people. You know, they want to have, you know, high-quality food. That's the reason why we do this. This is hopefully the reason why most of us do it. And, you know, maybe the net result of better antlers or antler growth is another, you know, additional consideration. But something I've seen on the landscapes and places I'm working. But let me get Matt on the line. Hey, Matt, are you there? I am. How are you doing, John? Good. Thanks good. for having me. Yeah, I'm happy to have you here. Now, if anybody doesn't know you, uh, you're a pretty well-known person in the industry. And I would say that, well, one, number one, you're in New York, so that's awesome. 
and uh, people listen all over the country. And I'm, I'm happy that we have another New Yorker on the call. The other piece is you've been with the NDA while you were with obviously quality deer management for a long time, obviously the consolidation and now the NDA. How long have you been with those organizations collectively? Yeah, thanks. Uh, good to talk to another New Yorker, as always. It's, it, you know, we're a rarity in the industry for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, I was hired in 2006, actually. So I'm, I'm pushing my 18th year for for working in the conservation field under deer, uh, some some relative uh, portion of deer. Before that, I worked for in the private uh, sector, private consulting, similar to you. Um, did wildlife and forestry consulting, but in New England, I was um, up in uh, New Hampshire, Maine area out of grad school. But I've been uh, at least with this company for 18 years or almost 18 years this spring. Um, had a variety of roles uh, working for the organization. I started as a regional employee that works with our volunteers, covered New York and uh, parts of New England, and eventually extended that up into Canada. Um, I did that for a handful of years, and then I moved into our certification uh, arm, which is where we first met, uh, which I was in charge of our deer steward uh, program. You know, our land certification and, and deer steward, which is the personal courses you can take. And uh, remind me what state we met again. I was going to guess Ohio. Is that right? I think it was Ohio we met in. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I did that for over a decade, was running those deer steward programs across the country. We have somebody else overseeing that now. Um, and we actually just opened registration um, last week on Thursday uh, for, for this, this year's classes. So that's Ben Westfall who works for me that oversees those. Uh, my current title is senior director of conservation and I oversee staff in the field. I oversee our public lands initiative, um, some of our chronic wasting disease work, a lot of education and outreach, but it's kind of a jack of all trades at this point and more at an administrative level. But, uh, my, my roots are in hunting, um, and in, land management just because of that previous career that I had, um, yeah. you know, working with, working with landowners. That's awesome. And you bring a wealth of knowledge to the table and that's why I want to have you on this podcast. I want to get into talking a little bit about, you know, deer demands and, and maybe specifically talking about this time of year, right? We're in the, the winter period in the North and uh, you know, throughout the country and we're dealing with, I would say deficiencies all over the place. And one of the things I talked about on a prior podcast is, and this, this related to farming specifically, we were, we were studying cattle and, and their importance in the landscape and how to use cattle to benefit our deer. But we talked a little bit about the status and the physiology of, of an animal and assessing that, you know, while you're in the tree stand and using that as a characteristic to say, are my deer healthy? Because the food that they're provided in the landscape, whether it's supplementally fed or you know, I guess what's naturalized in the landscape or, again, what you've planted will help the deer in the summer and fall and their ability to sustain themselves into the, the forthcoming months or in the months now going forward is really critical, not only to their survival, their individual survival, but the next generation of, of animals. And mm -hmm. I think for a future podcast, we'll talk about fawn recruitment and things of that nature. But I just want your take on you know, what do we think about when we're looking at, you know, what are the factors that we consider going into hunting season or post hunting season when we're saying, okay, what's the status of our deer herd? You know, how do we just start to assess it, maybe at a landscape level and then look at individual deer? What are the factors that you, you consider? Uh, there's a lot to it, but I would say, you know, one of the number one thing I would express is 
we manage populations, right? And so, or, you know, think about an entire herd rather than the individual. We can talk about individuals as you requested, but as you're managing anything from a natural resource standpoint, you have your hands and you can control certain things, certain things you can't control. And the best thing that anybody that uh, I could do in terms of making it through um, winter for deer is focus on the things you can control. And I'll talk about some things that you can't and also try to do it as large a scale as possible to affect as many individuals as possible to affect the population. And, you know, sometimes you might not own that much acreage. Um, if you're talking, if you're listening and you, you own a few acres or, or a handful of acres, you're obviously not going to spend a hundred percent of their time on your property. And that's where working with your neighbors comes in. And so those are two things that I recommend is pay attention and focus on the things that you actually can control um, you know, we're New Yorkers. We're going to deal with winter every year, although it's a pretty mild winter this year so far compared to others. Um, but it's going to happen. Winter's going to happen. Um, and one of the things you can do leading up to that is, and deer have evolved to make it through winter based on their fat supply. And so those months that the growing season is occurring, when the most nutrients are available, because it is a blank slate right now, deer just eating enough on a daily basis they're losing weight. You can't stop them from losing weight. That's something you can't control. What they're doing is they're they're actually trying to maintain a slow decline of weight loss during the winter. And uh, what you can do is give them as many groceries as possible in the growing season and in the fall when you have all those carb-rich foods available so that they bulk up. And their winter strategy of survival is reducing intake there so you, you could you could have as much food as possible on the ground right now and they still move less eat less and i can tell you in grad school um i worked at a research facility in new england new hampshire we had captive deer and so i was in charge of ordering all of the feed i mean they were like cat, cattle i mean they were domesticated deer um, that we would use for physiological studies and I, I was the one that would order all the grain every year to feed all these deer. And our food bill in the winter always declined by like 40, 50%. You could put out what we called ad libitum, as much food as they could intake. And deer didn't have predators. They didn't have to worry about deep snow because they were in like uh, paddocks that had like shelters and stuff. They still reduced their food intake. You can't control that. And so what you can control is giving them the best groceries during the growing season to fatten them up as much as possible. So your land management needs to be around that. How can I feed them in that time of year? You could throw stuff on the ground right now, artificial supplementation of food. They're not going to eat it. They could even get hurt from doing it. You know, they're, they're basically, they're building their winter survival up in other parts of the year. So those are the things I would recommend focusing on. So, Let's go down that rabbit hole. And, and you started opening the door to talk a little bit about their change in consumption. Does their metabolic state change in any capacity whatsoever? No. And that's been something that's been theorized and even publicized that deer have a change in their metabolic rate. Um, we have an article somewhere on our website about, about this. Um, and it kind of makes sense from other species uh, but the school that I actually went to uh, was known for publishing some of the research um, that disproved those theories. Um, we actually had deer where we could measure their metabolic rate because they were captive. 
we could do that through isotopes. We would take blood samples and you could measure the amount of oxygen in their, in their blood to figure out metabolic rate. And we showed the researchers prior to my uh, presence, they showed uh, meta- metabolic rate does not change. They change in behavior. So what that means is they are not expending calories. They're not up on their feet. They spend more time laying there to reduce the, the, the um, burning of the calories and the burning of the fat. And they, they yard up in some circumstances, you know, they'll, they'll just sometimes physically, you know, deer will congregate in areas and will move to areas prior to bad winters or prior to winter to stay in these yards. But all deer in Northern environments change their behavior in winter. And that's by just changing how much they move, how much they're on their feet and honestly how much they eat. And that seems counterintuitive, um, but their metabolism does not change. Their metabolism is a stable line throughout all, all seasons. Okay. I think it's a good point for everyone to consider because I think that's a misnomer of things that people may, may not recognize as being truth. So let, let's talk about diet shifts specifically. Um, but, but to getting to the point that you made earlier is they're creating these fat reserves. And when you physically look at a, an animal specifically, are there characteristics? So let's say, you know, you're, you're at one of your pens, right, where you were used to work and you're observing a deer for its physiology, what, what it looks like. And, you know, they've gone, some of these bucks specifically, right, they've gone in through the rut, they've lost a lot of weight, and they're, they're utilizing the fat reserves and they're kind of cannibalizing those, you know, essentially, you know, it's part yeah. of their, their, their intrinsic diet. What do you look at when you look at a deer's physical status you know, at this point in time and, and does that change? And do you use that as a metric to look at your deer herd specifically to say, are my deer healthy or not healthy? Is there, there's a physicality that you consider when you're looking kind of across the landscape at either an individual deer or many deer for that matter? No, it's pretty difficult, if not impossible to look at the exterior of a living deer and, and make that judgment call during the winter. And there's a couple of reasons that, you know, obviously there are bucks are going to lose weight. You know, we, I'm sure you've talked about this with some of your listeners, you know, they'll lose 25, 30% of their body weight, um, just going through the rut. And then they try to build that back. And so if you had pictures of an individual deer buck or doe, um, you know, from say mid late October, when they're probably the fattest before they really start rutting in the North, um, especially in New York. And then, you know, February 7th, which is when we're recording right now, physically those two deer would look different in some angles, some uh, light, you know, in terms of what the, what the photo shows, but they might not too. Um, And I say that because during the winter, their coat is different. They are, um, they're probably puffed up their hair. It's called pilo erection, which is basically they stand all their hair up on end to trap that air. And uh, you know, so from a physical standpoint, looking at a deer, yes, there are cases individual cases where you might have a trail camera of one buck and at the right angle, his hair's laid down and you can say, look how much he's lost. We have, we have education and resources on our website that actually shows those things, but by and large, you're not going to see it where it's happening is inside them. And so one thing you can do, if you have a dead deer, whether you shot at late season, you know, our season goes until uh, January 1st at this point um, in our state, um, I was just talking to one of my colleagues. They still have a few days left of their season uh, till this Saturday. So if you shoot a deer late in your season, um, you can look at the amount of fat built up around 
certain parts of their body, the rump, the kidneys. Um, there's actually a index that you can measure uh, fat uh, loading around their kidneys to determine how healthy that herd is. If you measure every deer you shoot and you use a certain period of time and it's the same you know, period of time every year and you compare that from a trend, um, that's a place. And the last place they draw their fat reserves, this is when deer are getting into that danger zone where their fat reserves are basically tapped out is in their uh, bone marrow. And so what biologists are taught, and I'm t- honestly, you know, I'm, I'm in my late forties at this point, but I'm, I remember this moment very clearly when I was in high school trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up, I got to shadow one of our DEC or basically age, wildlife agency biologists for the day. And what we were doing was picking up, we did a couple of things, but one of the things we did was picked up dead deer from DOTs in a bunch of different counties. And he was breaking the femur bones of all these deer that the DOT had picked up to measure the amount of fat um, in the bone marrow. And there's a way that you can tell whether or not the deer has depleted those reserves or not. And so if you're listening to this and you really want to know if your herd is hurting, um, if you, you don't do that on an individual, think about to, you know, 10 minutes ago, what I said, you do this at a population level, you would want a sample. You would want a sample of a number of deer from an area. And if the mean or the average of all those deer shows a certain thing, then you probably get a sense of that. Um, so if you have a lot of roadkill around your house, you could potentially do that. Just pull off, be safe and break the leg bone. If you have, you know, find deer dead while trying to look for sheds, break a bone but you know one deer is not going to tell you the whole story you need to have multiple deer to tell you that but from an external standpoint very difficult you're not going to be able to tell the health of uh, an individual really and definitely not at a population of how the deer are doing just by looking at them okay that's good good information for everybody all right let's go down another road and i think this is more related to kind of regional specific issues in our area, at least in years past, and I think things have changed a little bit with this climatic shift, we've seen winter severity indexes slightly degrade um, as compared to some of the periods like in the 80s and early 90s. And I've looked at those indices over time just to see what trends are. And they've used metrics and, um, you know, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, but I've looked at other states and I've kind of used that as a threshold when I've gone to different areas and said, you know, let's look at your winter severity as a comparative to New York, for example. And I wanted you to just kind of talk a little bit about that point. Do you ever use like the winter severity index? And, you know, they usually typically use, you know, thresholds related to weather, weather conditions, specifically mm-hmm. snow depth and temperature. Those are usually the, the initial factors, but there's really other factors that impact severity in a particular area are, are those factors you look at from when you're assessing you know kind of the landscape and you know your focus on providing winter food or or anything along those lines is there is there a net result because of the winter severity that you have to be conscious of and, and of course this is hard to predict what the weather is going to do just want your take on that sure. topic yeah winter severity index is, is a tool as you mentioned that is mostly utilized in the extreme north where deer live. You know, so you'd be talking about Canada, northern New England, northern New York, um, parts of the UP of Michigan, um, and even the northern lower uh, peninsula, Minnesota, Wisconsin, like northern parts of those states. Um, you can measure winter severity index anywhere, really, but you nailed it on the head, um, hit the nail on the head with what's involved. It's number of days where either snowpack is beyond a certain number of inches of depth 
and or temperature uh, drops below a certain level. And it's the combination of those two things. Um, and they take barometric pressure and some wind factors as well. But um, how many days consistently that it stays below a certain point? Um, and the reason being, um, it's it's a good uh, testament over time to look at trends. But deer also have that fat reserve I mentioned earlier. They have about a 90-day clock. Um, that's how much fat they have. And so winter severity index can either accelerate, stabilize, or decrease the amount of fat loss. Not not that it does directly, but it's an indicator of how quickly they might deplete those reserves. I don't use winter severity index much outside of my own, you know, my master's work that I ended up doing in graduate school. We had to use that to, to look at deer in northern New England um, and kind of what was happening with that. From a land management standpoint, I wouldn't um, use that too much unless you're in the extreme reaches of those areas. Um, like I said, it is going to, you know, there are certain things we have control over. Winter is not something you can control. It's either going to happen or it's not. It is a relatively mild winter this year. I mean, I'm sure sap is flowing in the sugar maples already. Um, and you, what you need to do is assess when you're trying to, I think I know where you're coming from. You're trying to make your decisions on what you do based on some of these things, right? And let's say you have a mild winter versus one that's real severe. How would that impact you as a manager? Just to ask you a question, I'm turning it around to the host. How would that, you know, how would you change what you do next year from the growing season or from the deer harvest standpoint? Would it change what you do? There probably are some things, but you know, I'm curious, how, how would you change what you do if we had a really mild winter this year? Yeah. And we, I look at it as a population control issue because ultimately we're looking at consumptive values. So if we put a unit against each particular animal, right, and each animal is a unit, we're measuring the volume of consumptive consumption on the, on the landscape. That's a factor. Then I'm looking at their presence on my particular landscape and saying, how frequently are my, on my particular property? And then what is the impact of that animal being on my property? One of the strategies yeah. we try to do is to keep deer into kind of their natural tendencies. Deer have a tendency to make small movements in areas where they feel um, that the most available food would be or the highest value cover. Maybe it's thermal cover for that example. And so in some cases, you know, we're recommending to, to clients that they're increasing the volume of thermal cover because it lacks on their particular landscape. And when I say landscape, I'm talking about a micro and macro scale. In yeah. concert with that, you know, that particular animal consuming anywhere between, you know, one to three pounds of, you know, essentially dry matter in that particular period of time, how much does that impact, you know, your result in uh, landscape and, and increasing the amount of food on a foot by foot level could be advantageous on the opposition piece of this is trigger control management and looking at, you know, we're we'll getting it yeah. to fawn survival at some point, maybe not in this call, but like, you know, what is the nutritional status or what is the physiology of that particular deer? Is it in good status? Does it seem like it's in good status? I mean, you can see the ripple effects come kind of those early, I'll say like April, May periods of time where the deer looks somewhat malnourished and they're naturally probably going to go through that cycle. But what is their physical status and health? And then resultantly, you know, what's their fawn survival like just based on the physicality there? Now, we didn't get into this. I don't want to get into the fawn stuff and managing all that stuff, but I do equate the the levels of population to, you know, a consumable index, and I can kind of scale it, like, based on GIS data of kind of what's the food 
availability in the landscape and equate that to a per acre basis on average. And one thing that we struggle with, Matt, and, and I'm, I'm struggling this with clients, is getting them to have as much woody material on the landscape as possible to help sustain the deer through these periods of time. Yeah. And, and, and it's a tough thing to do when the numbers are so, so high. And, you well, know, I can support that from, you know, from a data standpoint, you know, what they eat in winter, we didn't talk about that yet, but their diet is comprised of mostly woody browse. Um, it's 60 to 70% of everything they eat um, will be the woody material in the winter. And that's at a minimum, you know, they will find mast uh, resources that are leftover persistent foods that might be under snow. If you have snow and they'll dig that up. Um, if there are any, green grasses this is when they're actually eating grass but they'll eat lichen bark dead leaves um, but most of it is the living end of the growth of browse um, which is what they're eating this time of year um, but i asked you to you know so you need that it's it is the, the staple of their diet and it's actually in their diet year long you know the at a minimum um, they're eating probably 40 percent of their entire daily diet is made up of woody material. So woody material growing within six feet of preferred species has to be represented on the, on the uh, landscape. If you want to provide deer with your, um, you know, baseline diet, there are other things that will give you better gains like the forbs that grow in the spring and summer, the broadleaf plants, you need sunlight, you need disturbance to get that type of stuff, but woody browse is important. So if that helps your clients understand, if they're listening to this, 100% agree with that, and it probably needs to be a significant portion of the landscape. However, the reason I asked that question to you, John, was you know, mostly your habitat management is, and I want all the listeners to think about this, is you're probably not going to change trajectory and what you're doing on habitat too much because let's say you have a, a real mild winter and you were planning on building up thermal cover. We live in New York and you want to have whatever it is, 10, 20% of the property and good thermal cover for, for winters. One warm winter shouldn't change that because in five years you might have two back-to-back -back really bad winters. Your habitat management plan should maintain what you would like to do from a diversity, from a huntability, all the things that you teach your clients. You're not going to do much there. You take this information that you collect during the, the growing season from plants, like looking at what, you know, exclusion cages in your food plots or exclusion cages. I even put them up in clear cuts to see what regenerates in the, in the woods. Yep. You know, the, those tell a story and then collecting data off the deer you shoot, you know, taking good weights and, and uh, per age class and, and uh, productivity per age class, like lactation rates. That tells part of it. And the third thing, the third arm of it would be observation. Um, actually doing, recording what you see for deer when hunting or um, doing spotlight surveys or drone surveys if it's legal. Like basically doing an index of the living population. Trail camera surveys is another one. Those three legs of the stool are where you gather information and then change. Aha, the thing you said is trigger management. That's where you can have that fine scale change on an annual basis. How many you shoot or don't shoot. Habitat shouldn't change much. You want to have a real diverse uh, landscape with, which, with, that provides deer with what they need, whether you have a lot of deer or little deer. Um, it takes years to change habitat, you know, within reason. There's certain habitat management practices 
that you can increase or decrease on a rapid basis. But what you can really do as a manager is decide how many deer to shoot each year. And the greatest thing about that is we are the primary mortality source of deer. Hunters are. And so we manage them. That's why state agencies exist and why licenses exist. And so your your fine tooth uh, detailed way to change on a more frequent basis is hunting. And that's based on other data. Habitat should kind of stay the course as you're going. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, and to that point you just made, it's interesting because we've talked about having more exclusionary, you know, systems set up in, you know, fencing within some of these clear cuts or open areas, patchwork cutting. And to use that as a metric to see, you know, really how much are they actually consuming those areas? Some of the other staples or things that I recommend with clients is taking the time to, to measure and weigh and look at the, so if you cut a, a, a treetop and, and I do, I do delay cuttings. One of my strategies on my own personal property is we do some improvements during the winter months, but actually we wait to the severities at the highest or in this case where the deer are most deplenished. And that would be kind of in the April time period. And I do a lot of my cutting then. And I don't overwhelm the deer population with cutting. I save trees to cut. And that's a technique that allows me to build some habitat and structure in the landscape, whether I'm hinge cutting or felling trees, whatever the, the case may be. But it is putting food in their lap. And you know, in most in most cases, they're predominantly eating almost any species that I that I fell. So there necessarily may not be a large preference, but there are some preferences. And I want to get into, you know, you looking at the landscape now, and I'm gonna take it specific to kind of our region. You know, what are the species you feel like either from a tree or shrub component would be most valued, you know, this time of year through through the end of winter? Oh, you know, from a hardwood tree standpoint. Um, there's certain species that they will key on if available. Um, those tend to be the ones that are, well, all of these woody materials are ones that have probably lower lignin and more nutrients. Um, you, red maple is kind of like the bread and butter. Uh, I like to cut red maple and not spray it because it regenerates pretty, it coppices, um, and it's one of their favorite species in, in the north, and it's a ubiquitous species across the, the country, really, where deer live. Um they, they may choose other ones a little bit more readily, like elderberry, um, elm. That's actually a, a favorite of deer, especially when it sprouts. So there are certain hardwood trees, um, even sugar maple, but to a lesser degree than red. Oak is there. Um, ash is a, is a favorite. So like red maple, ash, elderberry, um, uh, those are probably in the top, top ends if you have those plants that they'll go and choose. There are some really good resources on selectivity, uh, the trees or shrubs that deer will, will select. Now, that might vary by availability and number of deer out there and preference. Um, some of that actually has to be the, the user has to just kind of determine what are they eating the most and, and try to select those species and cut them. But those are ones that I always earmark and look for. But it's not like they're not going to eat an oak uh, seedling. You know, it's moderately preferred. And I like to regenerate oak from a commercial standpoint. Right. And it's, a, it's an intermediate species, so you need shade and sun. It can't be wide, wide open. Um, but it needs to be pretty open to get oak. And I almost don't want the deer eating that. And so, <laughs> yeah. so, so, you know, so, so, so some of that comes with picking practices to regenerate a diverse, you know, you don't want one type of plant regenerating. And I'll also say, I know we're, we're getting kind of close to the end, is – you know, this might lead somebody to think about planting. Planting's good. 
we, we are fans of planting certain things, but I would push anybody to trying to regenerate things through natural ecology first by doing disturbance based, you know, mechanical treatments, herbicide treatments, fire, if you're able to do it, do disturbance based treatments that gets whatever's out there, the seed bank or, you know, the stock that's out there by cutting it, not spraying it, cutting it and spraying it and selectively allowing things to regenerate that are already there without having to plant a thing. Um, you likely have that. Uh, you just have to make, that's what management is, is, is making some of those decisions. Yeah, I think those are great points. And I think you need to pay attention. And this is about observation as, as, as it is anything else, you know, figure out what you're deer eating in your landscape and replicate that. Um, I'm just going to ask you maybe, maybe a more direct question. And this is something somebody asked me recently. So I'm, I'm going to shoot it, shoot it over your way. Deer poop. And uh, Will gooseby has been on here and we've talked about poop quite a bit. So I want to, yeah. I want to ask you a poop question. When you're sure. evaluating this time of year, deer's health and status is, is fecal matter, does that provide you any indicators or represent anything with deer's status and health in the landscape? Can, can we look at their deer poo and, and make some decisions on how my deer are doing? Is that a factor in anything? Uh, not from a consistency standpoint. I mean, that's diet-driven, um, but 100%. I mean, you can also can't tell the sex between them, you know, so one single pile of poop does not tell you a story. But there is a technique that I do almost every year um, on a property that I hunt called pellet count surveys. It's another way to determine um, density, you know, not necessarily the composition of the deer, but just how many deer are that there are. It's a, a scientifically proven peer reviewed uh, thing that you can go out when the snow is off, you know, snow is off if you have it, if there's snow, um, but before leaves start popping out, and you walk transects every thousand uh, feet uh, apart and you walk them as far as possible, you stop every couple hundred feet and you do a small little uh, four foot radius plot. Basically you just draw a circle or use a hula hoop and you count number of piles there. And what that does is, is it, there's a formula you can apply. You have the total number of piles that you found in your plots and you apply it and you can get a overwinter estimate of the number of deer um, that are living on that property. Um, it's a lot cheaper than, I mean, it takes a couple hours. It's free. Um, it's a lot cheaper than ha- and having a, you know, full blown survey done, but you can get a deer density estimate from that. And honestly, I can share, um, long-term data set that I've have been, you know, tracking on this property that when we decided we needed to shoot a lot of deer, um, it was about 1600 acres four farms. So it's a cooperative. Yep. We, we had to shoot, a bunch of does for a couple of years and we got deer management assistance permits and we killed a bunch of does, like 30 adult does, 35 adult does one season, 42 one season on 1600 acres. And after that, every year, not after that, every year we did this pellet count survey and you would see the, the pellet count per um, area go down when we shot a lot. Then we backed off on our harvest because we felt like we had the room to bring the deer herd back up. And the, the number of pellets went up. So it's a very, it's inexpensive. It's a very easy way. You do it while you're shed hunting. Honestly, it's the right time of year to do it. And if you want to just go for a walk for a couple hours, you can come up with a density estimate on the property. You're not going to know how many bucks there were, how many does there were, how many fawns, but you have a standing number of how many deer were on that property 
or the winter, um, basically from from when leaves fell. So I, they, that is the primary use that I would say that they can help with. They help in management of the property that I hunt on. If, and it basically is a confirmation too. Sure. When we shoot a bunch of deer, that number of that number of piles should go down, and it does. And I have a 14-year data set to show it went down, and then it went back up, and then it went down. So it all depends on how many deer you're shooting. Well, I think that's a good metric and something for folks to consider if they're really unable to do those full population surveys that you, you had mentioned. All right, I'm going to – one last question because I got you here on the line, and I want to bother you some more. When it comes to assessing landscape and deficiencies – but specifically what deer are consuming. And one of the species that in my area are very prevalent because of the, the type of area that, that I live in specifically is they consume a lot of hemlock. And they, they consume it at certain intervals or certain times of the year, usually not during the fall, not necessarily during the summer months, but I see them eating in the wintertime. Do, yeah. you, do you feel like, and their diet, they've be, be become accustomed to that. And, and our landscapes obviously you know, depending on the outcome and what happens with the, the hemlock species based on disease and, and insects, do you feel like there's indicator plants in our particular areas that we can reference that'll give us an indicator? You know, is their winter severity higher? Do we have a landscape deficiency where we don't have enough food? Beach is obviously one of those kind of re-sprouters or root sprouters that become probably yeah. like, you know, what are the what are indicators? If we're doing forensic review of the landscape, what are some of the plants that you're looking at on your hunting property that say, oh, goodness, we're in, we got some problems here. You know, they're eating the wrong plants or, you know, they're plants that we hope that they would uh, stay away from. I'm just want your opinion on that. Uh, yeah, there definitely are. They should be eating hemlock. That's actually not a bad thing. Right. Um, <laughs> the, the, um, the, 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 you know, and they're not going to eat it during the spring or summer. Um, they're, that's a winter food, um, balsam fir, some of the fir species or Atlantic white cedar, um, arbor vitae. Uh, in uh, northern climates, those are the like preferred species that they're going to eat during those times of year. But there are species that would be crush plants that are, you know, ones that are not their ice cream food, the ones that they want to eat. That if you see them browsing, that's what you're asking. Yep. Where we live, beech is the number one that I use because it coppices so well. It, it's shade tolerant, which means it grows well in the understory. And it's pretty prevalent where I live in New York on the Vermont line. There's beech everywhere. Um, and so they shouldn't be wanting to eat that. And the amount of browse that they um, put on a year uh, during the winter when they're eating uh, beach is not, that is an indicator that things are not going super well. Yeah. Um, so that's certainly one. Cherry, believe it or not, is one that uh, is kind of moderate to low preference. They might be eating that. And I would say um, it's, you know, got a stringent. an astringent to it so it's not something that they would want to eat so that would be a low preference as well and and i'll just add to your list um buckthorn would be a species that i would see although that's not a native species buckthorn um one of the ones and i've worked in vermont red cedar definitely don't eat red cedar but they love the white cedar so you know um and i think and and maybe you can quote me on this i could be wrong um i think you know in some areas, because of the ice load, et cetera, just the freezing conditions, water becomes sometimes an issue. And a lot of times, don't they get their water from the coniferous trees because they have a little more water value where the deciduous trees have less water value, so to speak? Like maybe that's a focus of hemlock, et cetera. Is that, is that maybe a true statement? That is a true statement, okay. yes. The coniferous, because they're evergreen uh, and the needles are 
are green, uh, they do hold moisture in them a lot better than the hardwoods do. Okay. Yeah, that's that's just an important thing. And and again, just pay attention to what you're consuming. And um, I don't have anything else for you, but is there anything you want to talk about, either upcoming events, things going on with you personally, any information that you want to provide the audience? Uh, sure. I'll, I'll plug our Dear Steward uh, course just because I mentioned it earlier, just came to mind. Um, so we have events. Uh, you can take an online course. Um, there's a couple different elements that you can do 100% from the comfort of home. Uh, there are, you know, programs that you watch videos of. There's like quizzes that come after. And then there's also in-person events. Um, and I'll just plug those real quick. The three events that we have this year is our level two class, which is uh, in Virginia, just north of Roanoke. Uh, level one, Dear Steward, is always the online. Uh, level two is where you go and use hands-on application of the principles that you, you learned in the online course, but you do it outside with us over a weekend. So we have that in um, August in Virginia. Uh, we are doing a prescribed fire uh, workshop in Michigan in the Lower Peninsula, um, Hillsdale, Michigan, on a property that was donated to us. That is in July. And then we also have a property setup class basically how do you design a property to make it function a lot of what we're talking about here you know the arrangement and composition of different vegetation classes um huntability access that is going to be in june in south carolina um so we have three different events if you go into deerassociation.com um, go to the menu uh do the drop down and there's a uh, option there under NDA programs called Deer Steward, or you can just search in the search bar, uh, Deer Steward NDA, and you'll find those courses. So um, if you're interested in land management and deer, um, these courses online or in person are phenomenal options for you to, to learn a little bit more. So um, check us out. Yeah, I think that's great. And uh, I want to end there. Appreciate you, Matt, being on the line. Go check out all those references that Matt said. I'm sure that you know, you'll get the benefit out of it. And uh, you know, appreciate everybody listening to the podcast. Um, last thing, uh, make sure when you're listening to this, please give a review. I appreciate everybody who listens to this. Again, there's no advertising on this podcast. There's a no intention to do that. Um, we're providing this information, myself and the rest of the folks that do this professionally. We appreciate you all and we appreciate you listening. So I'd like to thank the NDA and uh, Matt, we'll talk soon. Thanks, John. Appreciate right. it. See ya. Bye. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.